I don't ever remember when I was in high school seeing a cop come to school unless it was career day. And now we have, you know, they call them resource officers. They've, we've got cops in school. The lives of these young people are in the balance. And, and this is a population of young people that very much have been neglected for quite some time. And it's politically expedient to sometimes throw them under the bus, yeah. right? Building a nice building with natural light, right? Mm. Oh, we're going to put a mural. <laughs> we're going to give them some green yeah. space. Oh, we might even build them a gym. Like, <laughs> that's not reform. I want people to understand building a nicer prison isn't reform. Welcome to Bridge the City, a podcast recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Our mission is to bridge together people, resources, and ideas and inspire Milwaukee to action. And my name is Sam Woods. Thanks, Sam. And I'm Benjamin Rangel. And today we bring you part two of a very important series on youth justice here in Milwaukee. We focus on what the closure of Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake might mean for Milwaukee in the near future. That's right. But really quickly, we want to remind you that if you are enjoying the podcast and are able to donate a few dollars to our efforts consider becoming a patron on patreon at do the, it just do it at the four dollar and 14 cent level we don't pay ourselves to produce this podcast so your support goes straight towards things like paying river west radio to use their studio paying squarespace to host our website and investing in new equipment to grow our production capacity yeah and if you notice the sound of mm-hmm. sam and i's voice is just a little bit yeah a little bit more beautiful than usual it's because we were able to use some donations and from our patrons and uh, some other funding to purchase new microphones mm-hmm. that improve the quality of the podcast. So if you like what we're doing, try to make it a little bit easier for us to continue doing it, consider supporting us on Patreon. We'll put a link in the description. With that, here's part two of our series on youth justice in Milwaukee. In the early 1970s, Wisconsin and Minnesota made choices that would define their youth justice policy for decades. In 1973, and facing a growing adult and youth prison population, Minnesota state legislature passed the Community Corrections Act, which allowed lower-level youth and adult offenders to serve sentences in county jails or on public service programs in their communities. In the Implementation Guidebook to the New System, Minnesota's Department of Corrections wrote this almost 50 years ago, explaining why the act was passed. Quote, it makes little sense to banish the lawbreaker from his community, place him in a disorienting artificial situation, and then expect him to return home well-adjusted. It makes a good deal of sense, however, to keep him in his regular surroundings, extend him special assistance, help him to become reintegrated to work, training, education, family, and friends. In 1970, Wisconsin was also facing a growing prison population. In response, Wisconsin opened Lincoln Hills, a state-run institution more than three hours northwest of Milwaukee. Almost five decades later, Lincoln Hills is closing due to consistent reports of horrendous conditions and treatment of the young people there. And in December 2018, the Wisconsin Department of Corrections reported an average daily population of 160 young people at its state facilities. At the same time, Minnesota reported 83 youth involved in the state system, almost half of Wisconsin's population. And of those 83, only 14 were committed to being housed at a state institution similar to Lincoln Hills. With the closure of Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake, Wisconsin has a chance to reimagine what youth justice looks like in our state. Justice reform tends to be an issue that is revisited once every few decades, 
so decisions that are being made right now will likely set the tone for what youth justice will look like in our state for a generation or more. To help get a better idea about what Wisconsin's youth justice looks like now and could look like in the near future from legislative, judicial, and activist perspectives, we talk with State Representative David Bowen, who represents the 10th District, containing parts of the North Side here in Milwaukee, and Shorewood, Deputy Chief Judge Joe Donald, who presides over the Milwaukee County Children's Court, and Charlene Moore, co-founder of Youth Justice Milwaukee and Urban Underground. To start us off with a judicial perspective, here's Deputy Chief Judge Joe Donald. My name is Joe Donald. I'm a Circuit Court Judge. I'm Branch 2. Uh, I've been a circuit court judge for 23 years. Okay. I'm currently the presiding judge here at the Juvenile Justice Center. In addition to that, I wear another hat as a deputy chief judge uh, where we deal with all of the administrative issues with respect to District 1. What is the week in the life of a, of a, a children's court and judge look like? It, so we handle what are called delinquency cases. Mm-hmm. Those are those cases involving juveniles who've committed some criminal act. We don't necessarily call them criminals, and that's why we, we don't convict them and find them guilty. We find them delinquent. Okay. Um, and so those are the, the delinquency cases. We also handle what are called CHIPS, Children in Need of Protection and Services. Those are kids who are either victims of abuse or neglect. Um, there's a smaller subset of those sort of abuse and neglect cases if the kids are older. Those are called GIPS, uh, Juvenile in Need of Protection and Services. Mm-hmm. And then we also have calendars that deal with the termination of parental rights, where if the parent has failed to sort of meet the conditions of return or abandon uh, their, their child, then uh, the state can file an action terminating the parental rights. And then sort of the offshoot of those termination cases are the adoptions. Mm-hmm. So we deal with all the adoptions. You mentioned there's a difference between finding someone delinquent and finding someone guilty. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that difference and, and what it means? Well, it, it it's more of a sort of an inside baseball distinction. Okay. But, uh, you know, the general public is you've committed a crime, you should be found guilty. Mm-hmm. In the juvenile law, essentially, we recognize that these are kids and that they need treatment issues. So instead of labeling them as criminals, we sort of label them as delinquents. Uh, We try and address some of the underlying issues that bring them into the juvenile justice system. Um, But it's just a, it's a legal distinction. When you're working with young people, are there any like mandatory sentences that you you're kind of working with or working around even, or do you how like how much discretion would you have? Well, typically the circuit court judge has broad discretion in terms mm-hmm. of sentencing, um, and those sentencing factors you have to look at the serious nature of the offense, the character, mm-hmm. and the need to protect the public, so the character of the offender, and the need to protect the public. With respect to juveniles, uh, we can either place them in what is called a residential treatment center. RTC, or we could place them on probation, order them to cooperate with services, wraparound, or another agency that we work with quite a bit, running rebels, you know, and keep them in the community. But yeah, they're ordered to work with these agencies. Or we can place them on a DOC or, you know, a juvenile a corrections order, placing them at Lincoln Hills. Mm-hmm. The typical uh, length of the order, usually most orders are about a year. They can be extended. The maximum order is for two years. 
unless you are classified as a serious juvenile offender. And then that, that order can be for a total of you know, five years. You mentioned one of the things that you consider in cases involving young people is the character of the young person. Can you define a little bit more what you what what that means, maybe in a legal sense, and how it how it affects um, sentencing? Well, so you you kind of look at sort of the maturity level or immaturity level, um, and what sort of what drives that person's behavior and what's going on. So there, there's a difference between um, someone who is dangerous. You know, psychopath, you know, um, uh, or someone who is annoying, you know, yeah. an idiot. Yeah, there's a difference. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> right. So, so um, you know, you have to make that assessment between someone that's dangerous and someone that you're just sort of mad at. Mm-hmm. And then you have to figure out, all right, so how do I address this? Yeah. I, I often have to explain to uh, the community, the broader community, not every case or every kid should be locked up. In fact, most of the kids that come to the juvenile court system, uh, they come, we address the issues, we never see them again. There's a smaller subset, however, those that recidivate, those that keep coming back. Mm -hmm. And and they have different needs. They need a little more intensive supervision. Uh, They need more, uh, you know, mental health issues that need to be addressed. Uh, Substance abuse issues. You know, we have uh, a lot of young people who have, you know, huge substance abuse issues. Uh, as a system as a whole, we're dealing with a lot of people with substance abuse issues. So, you know, we have to figure out what is the right program, what is the right placement, uh, and then how much time. Uh, the, the research is, is that if you take a low-risk individual and you put them in a high-risk environment where you're trying to address all of these needs, you're actually doing more harm to that low-risk individual. If you take a kid who is just, you know, kind of you know, a moderate to low risk and you put them with high-risk kids, it's not like the high-risk kids become moderate to low risk. You know, it's, you know he's trying to survive in this sort of very contentious environment. And so, um, you know, you have to figure out what is the appropriate placement uh, and, and the, right, the, the right length of time. Mm-hmm. Have you have you seen changes over the last? Um, so you've been involved in the courts for twenty, I want to say twenty three years. Was that the number? Yeah. Um, so in those only, tr- it seems like yesterday. <laughs> right. Um, I, fact, I, I bring that up only to ask that. I, I was um, going to say I'm looking at you and I'm thinking you're you're not that much older. I'm twenty four. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so in in my lifetime's worth of of work on this a, issue, I, yes. Um, have, I, I mean, have you? I imagine things have changed, um, either like courtroom atmosphere, public perception, um, maybe legal legal stuff oh, has changed. Th- things have changed. Right. Things have changed. So, so uh, when I first started as a judge, the judicial rationale was to make decisions that were the least restrictive mm-hmm. and to try and really help the kids. Mm-hmm. And then there was this sort of, policy that was driven by this narrative of sort of the super predator and this tough on crime and we're really going to send a message and so um and that that did have an impact on judicial at least determinations in my opinion and so we started just 
you know, dropping the hammer on a lot of people. And, and as a result, we in Milwaukee now, we, um, you know, we have a very high incarceration rate mm-hmm. for black males. Mm-hmm. And so I think it is important to really understand that and to look at that narrative and to say that, are we really better off? Are we safer as a community? And if we're not, what, what is it that we need to do? Right. It costs us anywhere between 140000 a year mm-hmm. per kid. Now, yeah. you could send that kid to Harvard right. Right. and have money left over to help you know, pay room and board. Send someone else to Harvard. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so if we're going to spend that kind of money, wouldn't you want better outcomes? Yeah. And so I, I struggle with sometimes in talking with our policymakers is, look, we're spending the money. You, you know, you're spending it, but the outcomes are terrible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's take a step back and say, is there a way that we can do this better? Right. Is there something else that we can do? I mean, it, it only makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, with respect to Act 185, you know, I, I, I just at this point, I'm frustrated by the sort of the, the the headline I read the other day where mm-hmm. you know they want to delay things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's frustrating, and but you know it's something that you need to get right. I get it. Right. I come across the the term the Wisconsin model, referring to a new youth justice system. Um, that's just kind of like that's that's everyone's ideal, but when you get down to the details, like it kind of loses meaning because everyone just kind of projects their own like vision for what youth justice should be in Wisconsin. I, I'm wondering while I, while we have you here, you know, as someone who has you know been a judge and, you know, is like a key, is a key part of the youth justice system. What does an, what does an ideal youth justice system look like and, and how do we get there? Um, I would say smaller and more targeted. Okay. Um, and um, involving more, uh, at least institutions, that that child interacts with. Mm-hmm. So smaller can be, you know, no more than you know, 15, 20 kids per location. Mm-hmm. One of the things that frustrates me is um, if you start looking at the, uh, the suspension rate and the uh, expulsion rate of young black males, mm-hmm. it, it is way too high. Mm-hmm. So if the kid is having issues why not create a process and system to allow them to at least remain in school, but yet deal with those issues? Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, it was rare. In fact, I, I don't ever remember when I was in high school seeing a cop come to school unless it was career day. And now we have, you know, they call them resource officers. They've, we've got cops in school. Yeah. And they're there to actually take kids out. I just think, you know, we've, we've gone way too far in that direction. After getting a little more familiar with the youth justice system from the perspective of the courts, we wanted to turn our attention to legislation. So we sat down with David Bowen, a state representative from Milwaukee who currently sits on the Corrections Committee and helped draft Act 185. First off, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, I'm, I'm State Representative David Bowen. I have been elected to, in total for the last seven years. 
just made that milestone this month. Congratulations. Uh, you know, I'm elected to the 10th district in county, encompassing the village of Shorewood, a big chunk of the city of Milwaukee from 30th Street, uh, 35th Street and Capitol Drive, all the way to the lakefront, uh, to the border of Glendale on the north and the uh, in River West Harambe and on Center Street on the south. And uh, now I get a chance to, as ranking member on corrections, uh, make a huge impact, uh, especially on the topic that you guys are talking about on juvenile justice. Well, you mentioned the Committee of Correction on Corrections. Can you talk a little bit about the role of the Committee of Corrections in general on matters of youth sure. justice? Yeah, I mean, essentially, uh, the State Assembly Committee is a committee of oversight, committee uh, of uh, policy and legislative proposals, uh, where we usually get a chance to get involved in having conversations with the administration. Before that was uh, Scott Walker's administration, now that is Governor Tony Evers' administration. Just recently in the 2017-18 session, we had a chance to uh, pass uh, Act 185, pretty much renovating how we in Wisconsin create a system of juvenile justice for young people, changing the perspective of just having young people all sent to one facility uh, in the northern part of the state and creating a brand new uh, system partnering with counties to have uh, much closer uh, to home locations that young people can be placed but then also instituting secure residential care centers for youth and children SRCCCYs for the acronym um, so that we can have these new spaces that um, are trauma-informed. They don't look like uh, prisons. They don't look like jails. There was sentiment on both sides of the aisle uh, that we haven't had a chance to uh, make any changes to the juvenile justice system for up to that point almost 20 years. Yeah. So it was, it was due. And uh, while not everything we wanted was in there, uh, a significant step away from... Uh, the system that we had before. Mm -hmm. What specific provisions of Act 185 are you kind of excited about? I think one of the big pieces that I am excited about, one, is that Lincoln Hills is going to close. Mm -hmm. Like I, I think people underestimate how big of a political moment it was for us at the end of the session, Hail Mary Pass, to see if it's going to actually score, mm -hmm. where literally the option of doing nothing was on the table yeah. too. Right? And recognizing like how much uh, was riding on us getting that right at that moment because the lives of these young people are in the balance. And, and this is a population of young people that very much have been neglected for quite some time and it's politically expedient to sometimes throw them under the bus, yeah. right? And say, you know, well, I, and I'll use some of the words of my colleagues about, you know, young people that are, are thugs robbing grannies and stealing cars. And, and it doesn't do justice to the young people that really want a real shot at life and an opportunity and have not gotten that shot. And it doesn't allow them, especially when we have a community that needs to be safe, um, that needs to be protected. It doesn't excuse them to be able to do that behavior. Um, but it also makes sure that we are creating much more effective ways to be able to engage with young people to get them back on the right track. One of the things we championed was the Secure Residential Care Centers, a uh, pretty much a way of creating these spaces for young people that was already on the books but not being used 
and really trying to give definition and direction to the state to say, uh, how about we really go into this direction in a statewide basis to create these new spaces that are closer to home for young people, rather than what we had before, where we blended everybody together in one um, um, facility. This would allow us to have uh, county level uh, spaces that are small, right? We are not overbuilding and creating uh, these uh, places of incarceration with a hundred beds, right? We're talking about uh, in the county model right now, Milwaukee County, uh, some of them are looking at a 12 bed, 24 bed model. Mm -hmm. Some of them are looking at a uh, these separate small spaces uh, that feel like uh, dorms, that feel like homes, that feel like, that don't feel like traditional incarceration yeah. spaces. And I think that's making sure that we can actually treat the person, um, not just punish them because they did something wrong, because they committed a crime. Yeah. I would say also a large number of the folks that weren't committed to actually, uh, to the young people, aren't there anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. In a number of levels of leadership. So we have now gotten to a place where we have people, uh, a, a, a significant amount of folks that are so committed um, and staff. Right. That are committed to making sure that, you know, we're not just housing young people, um, but we actually are pouring into them because we believe that they need another shot and they can't. Right. There are so many young people that are going through these experiences, trying to find their way, um, trying to uh, figure out what it is that they could actually do with their lives and building past, uh, you know, the, the past situations that they run into with the uh, criminal justice system that they've had. But it all had to start uh, with folks making sure that we don't have a model that is the way that it was built before, you are pretty much warehousing young people and sending them out of sight too and mm -hmm. out of mind where uh, you don't really think about them until they come back. Um, and by the time they come back, they were coming back worse. One of the provisions of Act 1, major provisions of Act 185 is in, uh, I think it's $80 million uh, grant program for the construction or renovation of new facilities all around the state. What has to, you know, let's say I want I, I see that $80 million or however much it ends up being, and I say, you know, I, I don't want that to go to the construction of new facilities. I want that to go to, like, these wraparound services, these prevention services, community interventions. Um, what has to happen to kind of, like, free up that money to move, move that money from construction costs to like, uh, investing in, you know, like, wraparound services? And, and Well, I, I think or is it too you bad? have to, I like the perspective of us understanding, you know, are, are, are there young people that don't need to be in that space that we easily could transition to something else? Um, and that is a, a good conversation to have. Um, the, the money that was there for the construction of the new spaces was important because you couldn't get political buy-in without it. And there was no way uh, for Act 185 to be passed. And what we would have had was the same plan on the books or nothing would have happened, right? Literally, and that's like the yeah. continuation of uh, having no plan uh, in place to be able to change the system. Um, so I get that frustration. Mm -hmm. I think it's important for me, if I'm a legislator, not just to 
lead people in saying, hey, let's change these spaces, but to actually get something changed, especially when we're talking about the lives of young people where we're not the ones that are incarcerated, they are, right? And they are the ones that are behind bars. And every day that goes past where something new is not in place literally prolongs the timeline. And we're talking about system level transitions that usually take sometimes a whole legislative cycle, two years, um, uh, to be able to make these changes. I think there are conversations that are already happening in the state budget about youth aids that are program dollars Mm -hmm. that counties are using to be able to better effectively uh, provide the programming for young people um, and the community alternatives are paid for out of youth aids. Another challenge that has been brought up in our discussions around youth justice and particularly Act 185 uh, is like where the specific facilities, the new ones once Lincoln Hills is closed, will be in particular. Um, And I guess, have you heard from uh, city residents or city leaders around uh, not wanting for certain facilities to exist in the city or like yeah. to be elsewhere, or so, like sort of the not in my backyard type, yeah, you know, yeah. mentality. Um, and, and so, you know, there were uh, a number of meetings. Uh, and I, I think if there was more engagement with the community to prevent folks from being, because I, I think you're always going to have some folks that are the not in my backyard folks. They are also the same ones that don't want to invest in schools. They also are the same ones that usually are like, well, I don't have kids, so why should I care, mm-hmm. right? There are a lot more people that want to have a community where if young people get on the wrong track, we can get them back on the right track effectively, uh, quickly, and um, better than what we're doing now. Uh, because those same young people either become a drain on resources to... Uh, because we didn't do much to intervene when we could have, or they become the the young people that, you know, try to figure out, you know, if they even um, have the the chance to believe in themselves to be able to do anything greater. So have you had to work with city leaders and sort of get them on board? So yeah, that's what you, you wanted to know, especially about the folks that are in those spaces. I could always find the folks that, are concerned legitimately about our young people and want them to be better. They want them to uh, be able to succeed. Um, and there are some city leaders as well, right, That where sometimes it's a hard sell uh, to, to residents that, hey, this is a facility or a location that is uh, that needs to be a part of the broader community and we're having it in this space. Um, and we need your support to put it there. And we want you to assure we want to assure you that uh, the way it's going to be run, it won't be like the headlines that you've mm-hmm. seen. And I think that is the, the biggest uh, source of tension. So some uh, for people folks. might think it's, oh, Lincoln Hills, what I've heard about it is just going to be here now right. in the city. Or, oh. that we're to, or that we're building these max prisons for young okay. people, right? And that's not Which of course, what these yeah. are, right? These are supposed to be new spaces um, built in a, and designed in a much different way. Um but the, 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 the goal that it really was for us was to have these spaces that look like that they're part of the community. They look like they're homes. They look like they're residential dorms. They, they look like they are apartments. They, they look like that they are a part of the community rather than like 
these fences, right, and cells and like bars on windows. Like that's that's not trauma informed. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not even appealing to folks in their neighborhood, right? So I get the concern. Um, it's just important that we have the conversation in context with education and for folks to understand that this is in the benefit of all of us, right? And if we if we don't do this and we fight reform, we fight the chance to be able to make this better, what you're saying is, I want the old system back, right? And even in one of the meetings, somebody said, like, why the young people can't be up there, right? Why we can't keep them there. And it's like, wow, like someone really in their mind believes that it's better for them and and their their household, their life, for the community to have young people still in this archaic system getting worse, right? Spending more tax dollars to uh, try to get them on the right track. Um, and using the wrong way to do it on purpose. Like they literally want a system of failure. And I think because of fear mongering and uh, because of hesitation of even just being scared of your own young people, Mm. you know, that is the conversation that ends up happening. So um, I think it's important that we figure out a way to get to residents to have the conversation honestly and transparently but to also recognize the fact that in the end, this saves you money. It saves you lives. It saves the community uh, from literally continuing to allow folks to go down the path of, you know, the destruction that you keep saying that you are afraid of. And you don't know that you're advocating for it to continue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you literally are fighting the chance for us to be able to fix this. Um, and, and I think that's the conversation we need to have. But I, I, I get the concerns because people should be uh, protective of their neighborhoods and their, their communities and their families. But that this includes the, the young people, you know, <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, they, yeah. they, yeah. they are also are, part of the community. They are your family yeah. and, uh, and that you fail them too, mm. right? Next, we sit down with Charlene Moore, co-founder of Youth Justice Milwaukee and Urban Underground and member of the Grants Committee that will decide how to spend the millions of dollars of facility construction money Representative Bowen discussed with us. Like Vidya Natha Krishnan in Part 1, Charlene Moore is going to ask us to imagine a justice system beyond Act 185 and challenge us to seriously question whether this is the best we can do. Uh, my name is Charlene Moore, and I kind of wear a couple different hats. I started out with um, being the co-founder of an organization called Urban Underground, which is a youth leadership organization that works with high school age young people. And um, a lot of our work is centered around activism and organizing. And we work with high school age young people specifically around issues related to health, education, criminal justice and public safety. The new body of our work, um, which is called Youth Justice Milwaukee, has really centered around the youth justice system, realizing that not a lot of advocates, particularly on the youth side, there are so many organizations on the adult side that are working to reform um, the adult uh, justice system. However, uh, they're not 
many, if at all, organizations that are doing the advocacy work. And advocacy is very different from direct service. So we're not doing any direct service for this body of work, but really um, galvanizing uh, and bringing people to the table to talk about the issues that are going on and to say, you know what, how do we do something about it? Mm-hmm. So but I want to start uh, with Act 185, just kind of clarifying or like hitting the main points of what it what it is and what it does. Act 185 did set a timetable for closing those complex, at least closing the complexes as um, youth facilities. But can you give a little bit of background of what Act 185 is and what it means for Milwaukee um, in the next couple of years? I'll try to um, simplify it really um, just so that folks can understand. Um, Act 185 did four primary things. Okay, number one. It closes down our youth prisons. Mm -hmm. That was one of the things when the legislation um, was set in place that we were thrilled about. There were a lot of elements to it uh, that we were not, but the main thing that it does is is it closes down Lincoln Hills. Mm -hmm. The original closure date was January of 2021. The other three pieces that Act 185 does is that, so for folks to understand, you know, young people in the state of Wisconsin are classified into two different categories. We have young people that are called SJOs, which stands for Serious Juvenile Offenders. These are young people that have done um, more serious crimes. And and because of legislative change, carjacking has got into that series, you know, move those young people have moved Mm. into that element of an SJO. So with the SJOs, um, the act gets to build at this point, we're looking at two um, what we call type one facilities. These are higher security. It's like a Lincoln. It's like a Lincoln Hills. It's like building another um, Lincoln Hills, but smaller. Uh, And it's supposed to be in two different parts of um, the state. One is proposed for uh, Milwaukee. The second location, by the way, is in Hortonia, Wisconsin. And it's in the northeast part of the state, southwest of Green Bay, where generally residents do not support the decision to relocate a youth facility there. Um, The second piece that the legislation does is it creates, so bringing young people back into their community, it creates what are called Secure Residential Care Center for Children and Youth, Mm S-R-C-C-C-Y. And that's the new piece that um, was interesting uh, to us because it cre- it's supposed to create a space, a secured space for young people to be back in their communities. So that's the second thing. Mm-hmm. The third piece of it is um, it expands beds to Mendota, uh, which is our um, um, which is a treatment facility in Madison. And so this expansion is about an addition of additional 64 beds that are being expanded to Mendota. Currently right now, Mendota has 29 bed capacity for, um, for young people, Mm -hmm. uh, both. I I think it's just, it's just boys right now that Mendota has this expansion will allow girls because the type one facilities are just designed for boys, for young men. Um, however, the secured residential care centers are designed for both boys Mm -hmm. and girls. Um, so Three, three pieces, type one, um, the secure residential care center, um, and the massive expansion of Mendota. Right. And so part of Act 185 is the creation of this the grant committee. Um, and you sit on this grant committee. Can you talk a little bit about what the grant committee's role is in making these kind of these three expansions 
happen. I know there's a lot of money on the table. I think $40 million for this uh, SJO, for construction of new SJO facilities, another $40 million for the SRCCYs, and um, is it, I want to say like 15 for expansion of Mendota. There's, um, correct me if I'm wrong on yeah. those numbers, but um, a lot of money here for just like construction of facilities or updating new f- or updating old facilities. Yeah, can you talk about a little bit about Absolutely. like as someone on the what what the grant committee's role is yeah, um, ab- in kind of making Act One Eighty Five happen? Absolutely. So that total pot of money that you're mm-hmm. talking about, eighty million dollars, um, forty of that was um, earmarked for the secure residential care centers. Um, Twenty five million was earmarked for the Type One facility, and the fifteen and the fifteen remaining fifteen million was earmarked for um, the expansion or re- um, renovations of Mendota, and so. It is, and, and that was our issue. Uh, yes, I um, I sit on the grants committee, and you know we tried with this particular piece of legislation to get changes made to it in the first place because we understand that building a building isn't going to get us out of the problem that we're in right now. We shouldn't be funneling so much money into the construction of new. Um, spaces and updated spaces, especially with the research that um, we've been um, catching up on, uh, talking to different partners across the country, talking about what works. Columbia Justice Lab, you know, came to Milwaukee earlier this year. We hosted them and we talked about what is it that young people need? And when New York reduced its population, they had over 3,000 young people in secured care, over 3,000. Yes, we're not New York, but how can we learn from them? Currently, right now, New York has about less than 10 young people in secure care, right? What they did was use the closer-to-home model, which we're trying to say, hey, let's mimic this. And pretty much what they've done is leased out, worked with nonprofit organization and leased out boroughs. They, that's what they call, you know, town, you know, they're like townhomes yeah. and they're like brownstones. And um, they have four beds, um, six beds. They ha- the largest that they have is one 10 bed um, home. Those results are posed. I mean, you know, again, there's nothing that's perfect. They're going to have some hiccups along the way, which they have, but they're learning from it. They're learning that this put, putting young people back into a home-like setting, providing them with wraparound mm-hmm. care and services um, in, in a community that they come from that love and support them, um, providing them with credible messengers, you know, p- in adults that have been in the system, that have had life experiences such as their own to be a mentor to them have posed some tri- um, substance, substantive um, results. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the tough part about being on this grants committee, number one is being the only non-legislative individual. I'm the only community person that sits on um, the committee. And right now we're working with something that's already in law, that's already law. We're working with a piece of legislation that has already passed that says, yeah, yeah, Charlene, I know that you want to, you know, talk about funding for um, programs and let's talk about prevention, but that's not the charge of the grant committee. The grant committee is to um, solely provide and we don't get any say so around necessarily Mendota um, because that those dollars have already earmarked the same thing with the type one facility. Our charge is looking at the secure counties that apply for um, having a secure residential care center in their counties mm-hmm. uh, and of, and lots of counties right now are, they've submitted, a couple counties have um, submitted, and all this is public information, mm-hmm. um, co- um, two counties so far, Fond du Lac, have pulled out 
because they can't afford it. You know, we're telling these counties to create a new space that we're not giving money um, or any sort of infrastructure to upkeep. We're just saying, we're just saying here, here's 95% of the dollars. And if you add girls to it, here's, you know, if you build a space for girls, that's, we'll give you a hundred percent to do that. That's, that's telling. We're just saying, okay, build this and Hey, just figure out how to, um, how to maintain it. Mm -hmm. And some counties, lots of them just can't afford it. So they're like, "Mm, thank you, but mm, no, thank you. Mm -hmm. We're going to continue some of the reform efforts that we've already been doing. That's been working. What kind of reform efforts have you heard of that have been working outside of Milwaukee? We'll start outside of Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. There are some counties, for example, such as um, Racine that are not sending young people. Their judges um, um, have agreed, uh, you know, to figure out ways to um, provide support within the county. So they're not sending their young people to um, Lincoln Hills. There are other counties such as Madison um, that are doing the same thing. They're using the the tools and um, they've brought groups together uh, to talk about what do we need to do? What are, again, that's what we should be doing anyways, instead of saying, okay, let's send young people away. Let's look at what are the alternatives? Um, what are the buffers? What are, what do we have in place so that if a young person gets stopped by the police before they get deeper into the system, what are those off ramps for young people to not get deeper and deeper into the system? So for example, Madison even have a youth court. There are lots of counties throughout the state of Wisconsin that have a youth court, that have peer court. Mm-hmm. That's one of those efforts that instead of, um, and and these are for nonviolent, you know, offenses, you know, shoplifting and, you know, things, yeah, things that young, as a young person that um, most of the listening audience, you know, probably have engaged in some sort of um, shenanigans as a, as a young person that some didn't even get caught for, but, you know, some probably had to do community service, learn from their lesson. Young people grow up, they understand. You look back at your childhood and sometimes you think back like, man, I was a really goofy kid. You know, I did some really bad stuff, right? (laughs) Thank God I grew out of it. Right. Um, we don't give young people that opportunity to do that more often. And Milwaukee, for example, um, we're the only county that don't even have a peer, something as simple as a peer court, that off ramp to make sure that we're not um, pushing young people deeper and deeper into the system. Yeah. We're not giving communities the tools that they need. We have a recipe for disaster, and that's what's going on right now. We should say that peer courts are exactly what they sound like, a court where other young people participate in the judicial process by coming up with sentencing for those juveniles who committed some minor crime. Typically, a judge or other legal professionals are involved in the process, and peer courts provide young people on both ends with a voice. Typical sentences include community service, a writing assignment reflecting on the crime, or other alternatives to incarceration. Moving away from legislation and grants committee, uh, can you talk a little bit about the work that Youth Justice Milwaukee does? Yeah, absolutely. So the main thing that we want folks to know is that if we are looking at um, impacting the system, it is absolutely important that folks understand that those individuals have to have a say. Mm -hmm. We have to bring them to the table. We Mm -hmm. have to be able to say, you know what? We want to hear the voices of individuals that have been impacted. And on top of that, be able to listen to them and do something about it. Not just say, oh yeah, that's great. Oh, but 
to to really understand what their experience is and for them to use their experiences in order to make change. Yeah. We have to get back to this. How do we build up the community by listening to the community? So mm-hmm. community engagement for our work is absolutely key. Um, we've been um, working to build an infrastructure of, you know, families that have been, been impacted, young people that have been impacted, community partners w- that want to do this work mm-hmm. to say we have to do better. That's really the crux of our work. Our discussion with Charlene was longer than you'll hear today. Unfortunately, we weren't able to include the whole conversation. But Charlene talked to our producer, Sam Woods, on a variety of topics. Here he wanted to reflect on something else he heard from an earlier guest while producing this episode. He heard that young people exposed to the criminal justice system should be looked at as experts. Can you go a little bit more into how Youth Justice Milwaukee brings, like either, I don't know if the right term would be amplifies those voices, brings voices to the table? Um, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head, mm-hmm. right? When we talk about um, young people that have been a part of the system, they are the experts. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never spent a day in detention. I've never been to jail a day in my life. Yeah. Uh, and I I, for so for young people that have had those experiences, I value that because you have a particular um, area of expertise that I will never be able mm-hmm. to talk about. Mm-hmm. I can listen to your story and I can share that. Hey, this young person or what we're hearing, these young people oh. have gone through X, Y, and Z. But I can never be able to really tell their story. Mm-hmm from their perspective. And that's why it's so important to have individuals. That's why it's so important to have community that have had these experiences to be able to tell their short story so they can shape the narrative of how we look at experts. It's not the person with the most degrees. It's not the person has that has done the most research. It's individuals that have been impacted by the system and want to use that their their life as a platform to be able to change mm-hmm. the situations that are going on in this country. Yeah. Um so I know Milwaukee Milwaukee has a ton of nonprofit organizations, a lot of organizations doing doing good work. Can you highlight a couple, maybe not a couple organizations, but a couple like alternative to incarceration um that you know we should be thinking about when we're when we're kind of looking at what the post lincoln hills copper lake era looks like yeah yeah i would so for folks that are listening i would absolutely point people to what the office of violence prevention Mm -hmm. um has done with um the blueprint for peace so if folks you know google blueprint for peace it is a platform that um reggie moore has created to to be able to look at how we view violence in this city. Mm -hmm. And it comes from a multidisciplinary sort of practice because, you know, grandma next door can look at, you know, can, can really look at one of these areas and say, Oh, I can do that. It's for the average person, right. To be able to be engaged. That's what this work is all about. We talk a lot about reform and we think that building a nice building with natural light, Right. Mm. Oh, we're going to put a mural. (laughs) We're going to give them some green space. Oh, we might even build them a gym. Like (laughs) that's not that's not reform. I want people to understand building a nicer prison isn't 
reform. Mm -hmm. That's not the direction that we should be going in, right? What we need to do is figure out, all right, before young people even get to those spaces, because number one, those spaces don't work for children in particularly. Mm -hmm. What do we need to ramp up? And we've talked to young people. They'll tell you all day, you know what? Hey, I would like a job. Right. You know, you know what? I would love a mentor. Um, I, I would love to be in an entrepreneurship program. Um, I would love to um, go to school. Like they will tell you, these young people will sit down and tell you all day what it is that they want and that they need. You know what? I don't, I'm, I'm hope my family's homeless. I would love, a, I would love somewhere to live. Yeah. Right. We're talking about basic needs mm -hmm. and we are not putting funding we are not doing the things that we need to do in order to funnel dollars into basic needs. How do we provide young people with the tools and the support services that they need? Because at the end of the day, that's going to translate into results. Mm -hmm. One point that Charlene made a couple of times throughout her discussion with Sam was how a young person's entire life should not be determined or affected by one single action made in adolescence. We all did things, right? And so we have to remember that these young people, it's a small time span of when we look at an adult's life, adolescence is a really small part of that. And young people, mm -hmm. they will grow and they will move past that. But the question is, what are we putting in yeah. right now? What are the sorts of opportunities? What are we in? What's the investment that we're making is it a million dollar per child to build a to build a type one facility the county has proposed to build a secure residential care center and update their detention center 41 million dollars it equates to almost a million dollar per kid mm -hmm. can you imagine yeah i'm sure our listening audience could think about for their for their for a, a young person that they know or their own child what they could do with a million dollars what they could do with a hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, come on, mm -hmm. we have to get better as a society to start saying, you know what? We care about the lives, not just about some kids, but about all children. How do we give all children the things that they need in order for mm -hmm. them to be, to thrive and be successful because yeah. they all can. Lastly, we hear Charlene discuss whether or not we have what it takes as a community and a state to address the challenges in youth justice. And it's fixable. Mm -hmm. I, I, want, I want folks that are listening to know that everything that we're talking about is fixable at a fraction of what it would take to incarcerate a young person. Right, right now it's, it costs about, um, about $188,000 to incarcerate one young person at Lincoln Hills. The cost keeps going up because the numbers are declining across the country not in addition to Wisconsin, the numbers of youth crime and young people going into institutionalized settings has been going down. I know folks watch the news and you think that, oh my gosh, you know, these young people, they're running amok. No, they're not. It's just the sensationalism of the media that you see. No, young people are going to school. They are doing the right things. A lot of them are more than you think. Yes, do we have a few that need some support and in intense services? Absolutely we do. Those are young people that are high need. Mm -hmm. What do we do with young people that are high need? We support them with opportunities that are going to divert them, right? Mm -hmm. 
it's all everything that I'm saying right now. We can transition this. This is absolutely doable. When we're talking about youth justice reform and talking about young people, I know some people may have this stance of, you know, you do the crime, you pay the time, Mm -hmm. you know, but when we think about children and what children need, I want people to think about the, the kids that they're connected to. I want people to think about their own children. What would you do for your own kids? What kind of support, what kind of services, what kind of connection would you want for a child? And when we think about locking up kids in cages, it's, you know, people think, oh, no, kids aren't in jail. Yeah, yep, they are. Mm-hmm. And, and it looks like one and it feels like one. And, and, and when these young people come out, because the majority of them will, they'll come back to communities. They'll, they'll be engaged. They'll live next door um, to people that may look like you. And I want people to understand that we have to love our young people. We have to provide them with that connection of love. And we have to start there. And I think we'll make this state a much better place. Because this is Bridge the City, we asked our guests for action steps we could take to get involved on this issue. I, I, would, I would break it down to something very simple. Get involved in a young person's life. There are lots of organizations out there, and you've, you've named a few that you've already talked to. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it just comes down to actually getting involved with a young person. We, we, as a community, we have to stop being afraid of our young people. We have to encourage them. We have to celebrate their successes and, and, and understand that you know, some of them um, are, have backgrounds that are tremendously hard and they have struggled and what they need is uh, help and guidance, not, you know, you know, punishment and exclusion. Um, I think one of the biggest things that you could, you could do is to make sure that we actually have a state budget in place, a new state budget um, where like the political um, polarization that's happening, um, that's not allowing folks to work together uh, pretty much will create a process where we won't uh, be able to see an extra dollars right on the program side and we know that's where we can make a huge impact um, we at least got over the hurdle with closing Lincoln Hills now it's time to really focus on programming but you really won't be able to have that conversation at all if youth aids are frozen where they are right now um, if there aren't added extra supports for uh, counties around the state to have extra program dollars, um, governments um, around the local governments around the state to have extra shared revenue dollars, um, millions of dollars, and uh, $600 million to be exact, just for special ed funding alone. Um, and special education funding, we know, has a huge impact on the young people. If you have friends and, and family and people that you know around the state, uh, get them to contact their legislators too. Not just contacting yours, mm-hmm. um, but really reach out to folks that are all over the state of Wisconsin, getting them to contact their legislators. That's what I think will be uh, the paradigm shift uh, to get folks to say, okay, we'll, we'll listen now. We'll do something now. One of the primary things that we'd like to tell people, your, your elected official, please talk to them about investing money into 
education, investing money into prevention. We don't need more youth jails. We don't need more prisons, period. Folks need more opportunity, job opportunities. How can we expand? How can we have a rail system in this state that takes people from one city to another? I can live in Milwaukee, but work in Madison, work in Kenosha, work in Racine, I, right? How can we expand an infrastructure that prov- that's reasonable, that provides people opportunities to be able to thrive, to be able to th- support their family? So that's first and foremost. We have to have people talk to their legislators to say, you know what, we need, and these are bipartisan, these should be, bi- these should be yeah. bipartisan issues, yeah. things that are going to support families and support children, support our education system, support our healthcare. These are just basic human needs and human rights that we all should have the opportunity. Not only if you're rich, not only if you were born into a, you know, into a community um, that, that has all that, those things, no, it should be afforded to everyone. So that's the, one of the things that I would say for people to do. The second thing that I would say for people to do is support other organizations that are doing this work. Mm-hmm. You're welcome to um, take a look at youth justice, MKE, um, dot, um, dot org. We're on, um, we're on Facebook, we're online, check us out, but there are a plethora of organizations in your community. Volunteer. If you don't have, um, resources to, to give, donate your time. Young people need this. They need to see individuals that, um, that care for them, that want to be a listening ear, volunteer your time. Um, and number, and, and I would say probably those two things because, I need people to um, to say these these are the things that are not right. We shouldn't be locking up young people. Um, and number two, personal. What am I going to do personally? Thank you all so much for listening to and continuing to support Bridge the City and for taking action on this issue. Hopefully you notice that one important voice has been missing throughout our first two episodes on this series, the young people themselves. Yeah, unfortunately we ran into some delays with arranging to have youth who have been in the system on the podcast, but wanted to put something out now to ensure the action steps you heard today were timely. We're still looking to get young people on the podcast and are planning to have a full episode devoted to young people in the coming months. So subscribe to the podcast now to make sure to catch that when it's out. In the meantime, if you're interested in hearing a youth perspective of people who've been through the juvenile detention or criminal justice system as young people, check out the VRP Breakdown. It's a podcast recorded from young people at the Vel R. Phillips Juvenile Detention School here in Milwaukee. You can check out a link in the description of this podcast. Also, if you haven't already, become a patron of ours on Patreon at the $4.14 month level or whatever level you feel comfortable giving. Um, even at $4.14 a month, you will help us tremendously from continuing our bi-weekly radio show Sundays at 5.30 on River West Radio um, to paying Squarespace to host our website, investing in new equipment like these beautiful new mics that you hear our voices on today. Uh, your support will go a long way. Thank you to David Bowen, Judge Donald, and Charlotte Moore for joining us on the podcast, and thank you for listening. We'll be back next Monday, but in the meantime, tweet at us, DM us, tag us, email us, call us, write us a letter, or just find us on the street and tell us how you have helped bridge this city.